It's my privilege and honor this morning to read the scriptures in James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Holy and gracious Heavenly Father, in these next few moments, I pray as we open your word, we know that when we open your word, we can expect to meet you in your word. And Lord, when you come and meet your people, we should never be the same again. God, I pray this morning as we hear from your word and we hear from you and we are guided by the Holy Spirit, I pray that that would be so, that we would leave this place changed with a greater view of who you are, a clearer view of who we are to be, and a heart filled with worship for the fact that in the midst of all of that and in spite of much of that, Lord, you still love us. And you have chosen to shed your grace and your mercy upon us. So Lord, I pray right now you would guide us through your word. We would both learn more in our minds. But Lord, we would be transformed more in our hearts. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you could tell, um, it has been quite some time. It's been 11, or this morning is the 11th sermon. It hasn't really been 11 weeks. We've had a few weeks off, but this is our final message in the book of James, and I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. As we uh, have, have looked at the entire book, I was actually speaking with a few of our dear ladies this week, and um, they told me that many of them said, you know, I've never really... I've been through the book of James, or at least sections of the book of James in a sermon series, but I've never actually heard the book of James from beginning to end. And, and if you realize this, since I um, have been here really, this is, this is the first uh, longer book where we've been able to essentially go from the beginning to the end of it. And um, I, I hope that you have noticed, as, as I am very convicted of, that when we do that, when we begin at the first verse of, of a book and go all the way to the end of it, you gain a different perspective of the book. You tend to see it in a different way. And I would submit to you, not only do you see it in a different way, but actually maybe for the first time, you see it the right way. You see it the way that the author intended for it to be understood 
And so when you look at the book of James, what we find very quickly is that the book of James is, in fact, as some have said, it's like a New Testament Proverbs. But, but even more than that, James is describing what it looks like to live a life of genuine faith. As it were, he goes through the entire book, essentially, giving, giving tests for what genuine faith looks like. And, of course, one of the main conversations or the main subject uh, uh, subjects in the book of James is the concept or the understanding of suffering and trial. He begins, James 1, with considerate joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and difficulties. Right? And he begins to talk through that more and more. And even last week at the beginning of chapter 5, he discussed suffering and patience like the prophets of the Old Testament and Job himself. So he has spoken quite a bit about suffering and many of us, that suffering is not, it, it, none of us are immune to it. None of us are immune to struggle and difficulty. Have you ever felt like you lacked the ability to get past something or to get over something? Um, in the sense of a trial or a hardship or a difficulty in your life, it feels like every time you take one step forward, you take two steps backwards. Have you ever felt like you were just, just coming up a little short? Coming up a little short in this struggle. Have you ever felt powerless? Well, as a believer in Christ, you have an amazing resource at your disposal. See, James goes through this entire discussion. And then at the end of the book of James, at the end of the letter of James, he begins to discuss something that is very interesting. Because to be honest, it almost seems out of place. Unless you look at the entire book of James as one letter, what you realize is James is saying, look, he starts with consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and difficulties. Then he walks through what, what righteous living looks like in the midst of these trials and these hardships. And then in the end, chapter 5, when you see the whole book, what you realize is James is saying, in the midst of all those trials and difficulties, the number one tool that you have, the number one piece of power that you have in the Christian life is the power of prayer. But see, if we have this amazing resource and, and we have this power at our fingertips, if you will, then why do we feel many times like we have nowhere to turn, like we have nowhere to run in the difficulties of life? Here's a story I read about a, a, a young couple, uh, they, uh, or a couple really, they had been together since they were young. Uh, they owned a very large farm, and um, every morning they would, they would uh, from the time they were married, they were, they were essentially 19 and 20, they got married, and every morning they would get in the truck, and they'd drive around the property together. They would do this every single morning. They had been married for 40 years, and every morning, like clockwork, they got in the truck, they drove the fence line, they drove the property but it, the, the wife began to get pretty uh, annoyed. I know none of you have ever experienced that. But the wife, she began to get pretty annoyed that she felt that her husband was growing ever more distant from her. Um, it, just, it just, with each passing day, it seemed like he was growing more and more distant. And it was just building up in her. And, and finally, she just, she had enough. They got in the truck one morning. They're driving around the property. And she looks at him and she says, I'm, I'm done. He said, what do you mean? She said, we never sit all snuggled up 
next to one another in the truck like we used to. He sat for a moment. Then he looked at her and he said, Sweetheart, in 40 years, I've never moved. See, when we discover as a church or as individual believers that we aren't as close to God as we once were, and we feel that we don't have the power that we need to accomplish the things we are called to do in this life, make no mistake about it, if we feel that we are far from God, He never moved. We did. If you feel far from God, it is because you have drawn yourself away from him. In fact, James tells us to do what? He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, if you have moved away from God, he did not move. As believers were called, we're even commanded to pray to God in all times or at all times for any reason. As his children, we are to be completely dependent on him. So in prayer, we go to him, we make requests. We worship Him. We have the most amazing resource at our disposal. And what we find, finally, at the end of the book of James, is that genuine faith is marked by effective prayer. Genuine faith is marked by effective prayer. See, it can be easy sometimes to wonder if, if what we have to pray about is really that important. I know often... Uh, you may feel that way. I know I've felt that way in the past as well. Like, I'm going to go to the Lord and pray to him about this, but does he really, I mean, is this really something to pray about? Is this really something to go to the Lord about? Does it really matter to him, or does it really matter enough? See, there are many different issues in our lives and prayer uh, that can come up, and prayer shouldn't just be the thing we turn to as one of the ways we accomplish this. But in fact, James tells us it is to be the constant in the way we approach everything in this life. See, genuine faith prompts us to pray in all circumstances. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So James tells us that we are to pray in all circumstances. The first circumstance that he tells us there in verse 13 is that we are to pray in times of suffering we're to pray in times of suffering is anyone among you suffering let him pray it's really important uh, that we remember again full context of james this is going to become very important here in a minute um, the full context of james is anyone among you suffering well, the truth is, it's almost a rhetorical question. James has repeated over and over again that he knows that they are suffering. He knows that they're struggling. In fact, he, he condemns the rich at the beginning of chapter 5 and tells them, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So those brothers and sisters in the church were being, uh, were being persecuted and even murdered by those 
who were withholding or holding power over them. He tells them that their life is a vapor. He tells them to consider it joy when they encounter various trials. He knows they're suffering. So when he says, is anyone among you suffering? He knows they're suffering. So it's as if to say, since there are those among you who are suffering, do what? Let him pray. He should pray. This is, this is a command, just as he gave commands all through the beginning of chapter 5, as we saw last week, just command after command after command. And that's how he essentially ends the book. He just gives command after command. And he tells them, if any one of you among you, or if anyone among you is suffering, then he should pray. So if you're struggling today, if you um, have difficulty or trial in your life, he commands us to pray. But it's in the present tense. So it doesn't mean if you're having a particular struggle in your life, then you should pray. He's saying, because I know that your entire life is essentially going to be marked by one trial or another, you should pray continually at all times. The word literally means to pray continually. Uh, so this is not supposed to be something you and I resort to when things get hard. It's supposed to be something that marks our lives daily. So he says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. So we are to pray in times of suffering. We're also supp uh, supposed to in times of gladness. So he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So is anyone cheerful or happy or merry? Literally, the phrase is well in soul. So is anyone well in soul? So what is he saying? So when we remember the suffering and the difficulty, he just told us to think of the prophets of the Old Testament who were persecuted for declaring the word of the Lord. And he says, if you remember Job, the patience of Job, he suffered as well. right? So they were suffering trial, difficulty, and hardship. Um, and so he says, is anyone among you suffering? What kind of suffering? Well, the suffering he just mentioned. Persecution, difficulty, hardship, trial. Then he said, is, is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. So is anyone among you well in soul? It, James is saying, if any one of you is downcast in soul and struggling, let him pray. If anyone among you is up in soul, if you are happy in your soul or well in your soul, then let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. Now, of course, I know we hear that, we read that, we say, well, that's not prayer, that's, that's singing. Well, you know, singing is prayer. Uh, because prayer is talking to God, and often when you sing, you're singing, How great thou art. If you didn't realize it or not, you're not singing that to me or to each other. You're singing that to him. So that's prayer. So when you sing praise, you're singing prayer. You're praying to God. So he says, if you are struggling in difficulty, hardship, and persecution, then you need to pray continually. If you're having a great day and things are going well, then you need to pray in praise. You need to pray continually then in verse 14 so he gives these three so it's in times of suffering in times of gladness and in times of weakness in times of weakness is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So this, these, this verse, or these verses, uh, 14, 15, and the first part of 16, have been used to develop 
a pretty uh, significant doctrine, at least in, 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 in the New Testament church, at least in the last several hundred years. And um, it's been used to, to kind of say, this is how we do this. Um, I, I'm going to prepare you for something. I want you to prepare yourself for the fact uh, that my explanation of these next few verses may be different than what you have been taught. And they may be different than what you have believed for some time. So just go ahead and fasten your seatbelt. Um, but I want to give you two things that I want to assure you of. The first one is this. Is that literally I have not come to this understanding lightly. And I have come to this understanding through years of doing research on this particular passage in Greek. And in the context of the book of James to arrive at this conclusion. Second is this. If after my explanation, which I know is almost certain... There are those of you in this room that say, I just don't agree. That is perfectly okay. You have every right to be wrong. But you should know this. This is not a primary doctrine of Scripture. This does not have any bearing on your salvation whatsoever. It does not have any bearing on whether you are a Southern Baptist. It does not have any bearing as to whether you are a member of Eastwood Baptist Church. This is a secondary, maybe even a tertiary doctrine in Scripture. So before we even jump into this, I'll say this. If you disagree, that is okay. See, our world tells us if you disagree on something, that means we just have to, we have to part ways. We can't be around each other. Um, if that's the case, nobody would ever get married. The truth is, you may disagree, that's okay. This should not divide us at all. But I'm going to show you, I believe, why I believe this is what this says. And I, and I think, honestly, after beginning in James 1.1 and going all the way through, what you'll notice is may, maybe what I've thought hasn't been the case. But this verse has been, we use the phrase pulled out of context. It's when you take a section of scripture and pull it out and read it by itself. You don't read it in the context of the whole book. James did not write this as a short little email. This was written as a part of a letter and building a doctrine for the church. So he says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? This word sick is interesting because in the Gospels it can be translated ill, physically ill. But everywhere else outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So everywhere else outside in the epistles in the New Testament, Acts, Romans, all of those places, everywhere... It is actually translated, not sick, but translated to be weak or weary or have no strength. That's what the word means. So it does not mean physically ill. It means weak or weary or having no strength. Now, I recognize that some of you in this moment went, what? What? That's just, just hang on, okay? It means to be weary or have no strength. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Romans chapter 4, verse 19. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 14, verse 21. 1 Corinthians, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Every single time it is used in the New Testament outside of the Gospels, it means weak or weary in soul. It does not mean ill physically. Also, the context of the preceding passage is what? We just talked about it. The context of the preceding passage is suffering and trial due to persecution. It is not physical illness. In fact, read the book of James again. How often is that mentioned? 
It's not. He's talking about trial and difficulty. Now, certainly, if someone is experiencing trial and difficulty, there could be physical illness going along with it, but that's not what this is talking about. The preceding passage and all of the book of James, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, James chapter 2, verse 6, and James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, when it talks about this, it's talking about persecution, trial, difficulty, and hardship. Most often for standing up for your faith or living your faith out in the world. So, with the context of the whole book of James and the context of the preceding passage and the context of the entirety of the New Testament outside the Gospels, James says, is anyone among you spiritually weak or weary? You say, well, my translation says sick. So does mine. These are translations we have just a little, like, 30-second side note here. Your English Bible is a translation. It's a translation of Greek, which means that at some point in time, someone or a group of someone sat down, and they looked at the passage, and they said, we believe this is what this means. Now, I don't want to freak you out, because I can promise you this, that your, your Bible is accurate, okay? Your Bible is accurate. But when you look at this passage, uh, people who are translators can look at this and say, well, based off what my preacher told me when I was growing up, this is what I think this word means. Instead of saying, well, based off of this lexical analysis and these words and Greek syntax and the use of the language throughout history, this is what this word means. You say, well, aren't they translators of the Bible? Aren't they supposed to be accurate? They're human. They're human. And they sit down and they make decisions based off what something should mean. So your Bible is completely accurate. But even the Southern Baptist Convention in our Baptist Faith and Message, we say that we believe that the Word of God is inerrant and infallible and will lead you into all truth in the original autographs or in the original manuscripts, which means that it is entirely and 100% accurate when it is read and understood in Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. Because that's the language in which it was written. And anything outside of that is a translation. If anyone in this room speaks another language other than English, you know that there are words that don't translate back and forth. And sometimes they don't, the ideas don't fully translate back and forth. So we have to work hard to try to make it make sense. Because when you take Greek and bring it into English, sometimes the words just don't match up. We have one word for love in English. Love. There are four words for love in Greek. And it all depends on the context as to how we know what it means. So that's just a little side note. But the point is, when we look at this passage, it says, Is anyone among you sick or weary or weak or have no strength? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So why, why would I say this makes sense? Well, he just said in the previous passage that we are to think about the prophets who had suffered. We're to think about Job who had suffered and did not grumble, did not get angry, but instead he was patient, waiting on the Lord. Those kind of things. So suffering and difficulty and trial. And then he says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you weak or weary spiritually? So what does it mean? Well, when you look at this passage, what he says is, if any among you is suffering, let him pray. If any among you is having a great time, then let him sing praises. 
And if any among you is struggling so much that you can't even pray for yourself, then call for the elders of the church. Okay, that's, that's what this is. This is actually a, a push not to something mystical. It's a push to the community of faith. It's the way we're supposed to act as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. So he says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, very important. One, the word elders here is a technical term. We read this sometimes and we think, oh, so he means older people. No, he means elders. Uh, elders are those who are called and set apart by God to be pastors. Um, that's, that's what this means. We can go into a full explanation of that later, but that's what it means. So he says to call them together. But in the context of this passage, what does he mean? He's saying if you're weak and weary, then you need to call for those who are supposed to be strong in their faith so that they may strengthen you. That's, that's the point. So you want, if you're weak in your faith, then you want to call those who are strong in their faith. doesn't mean they're perfect, by the way. I know, because I am one. It doesn't mean they're strong in their faith all the time. It just means they're supposed to be, generally speaking, stronger in their faith, and they are to be able to pray for you. So he says, let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil, with oil in the name of the Lord. You say, okay, see, see, that sounds mystical, except... The word here for anoint um, is a different word than the word that's used ceremonially to anoint like a king or, or someone like that. Uh, the word here for anoint, literally, it, it, mean, it says in Greek, this phrase says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And after they have oiled him, that's after having oiled him is actually the phrase. Why is that important? Well, this is not some mystical ritual where, where the Holy Spirit is represented, represented through oil, like in the calling of a judge or a king or a priest in the Old Testament. This is actually a, a, an occurrence that happened all throughout the first century church. It happened to Jesus a couple of times um, in his life. Whenever a weary traveler would come to someone's home, and they were weary from the road, their skin was dry and cracked because they were walking in sandals through the desert and those kind of things, what would they do? They would give them something to wash their face, they would give them something to wash their feet, and then they would anoint them with oil. They would, they would coat them in oil. They would either pour it on their head, pour it on their feet. Why? Well, one, because if you're walking through the first century world barefoot, essentially, in the dirt and the mud and all of those things, and you come into your house, your feet are not the nicest thing in the world. And when you sit down at table to eat, you reclined at table. You didn't sit with your feet under the table. You sat on your elbow like this with your feet out to the side, which means the person next to you had your feet in their face. So wouldn't it be nice if someone washed your feet and then put perfumed oil on it? I would say so. Right, And so this concept here means what? Well, when a weary traveler came into someone's home, they would give them oil to do what? To refresh them, to encourage them, and to uplift them and say they are thankful for them being in their home. That's why Jesus got so angry when the Pharisees said, why are you doing this? And he looked at him and said, you didn't even give me something to wash my feet or anoint my feet with oil. You did nothing for me. So this word means to do something, or this, this phrase, has to do with refreshing a traveler or welcoming a guest. It was intended as a refreshment or a ministry of encouragement. 
So then he says, I'm building a case here, so just bear with me. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So your translation might say, um, and the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. Well, the reason it says heal is because a translator reading this passage said, oh, this means physical illness, illness, so he means heal. Except the word here for heal, the ESV translates it save because it is the word in Greek, sozo, which is the word save or salvation. So he says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or restore or deliver or rescue So, then he says, it will rescue or restore or save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now that phrase seems totally out of place if we're talking about physical healing. Why? Because if we're talking about physical healing, then that means that if you're sick, somehow sin must be tied to your illness. That is certainly a belief that some held in the New Testament days, but it is not a belief that Jesus held. If you remember that Jesus came up to a man who was ill and he was blind from birth and His disciples looked at him and said, why is this man like this? Is it because of his own sin or because of the sin of his parents? So that's what his disciples thought. But you remember what Jesus said? Neither is true. This man is like this so that the glory of God may be manifest in his life. And then he healed him. There is a quote-unquote faith tradition that believes that if you are ill, it is because of some sin in your life and that if you were faithful or righteous or had more faith, you wouldn't be sick. That is, can I tell you honestly, that is one of the most deplorable lies from the pit of hell that I have ever heard. If you're sick, is it because of sin? Sure, in the sense that sin entered the world, therefore sickness and death entered the world. But just because somebody has cancer, it does not mean that they don't have faith. And just because someone prays to be healed and the Lord doesn't heal them on this side of heaven, it doesn't mean they don't have faith. It means that they were subject to this broken world and a broken body and a glorious and awesome God. So it has nothing to do with sin. But if you read this passage like he's referring to physical illness, then you have to tie sin to physical illness. Because he says now, when they pray for him, what happens? And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then he says this, and if he, therefore confess your sins to one another. So therefore, remember, what's the therefore, therefore, therefore. So he's summing up everything that he just said. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. But that's a spiritual thing. That's not a physical thing at all. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Restored is the word. You may be healed or restored 
from sin and its effects. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, it doesn't make sense. If he's speaking about physical illness, then you have to tie sin to physical illness. And you have to ask yourself the question. We've done it, Pastor Dana and, and Pastor Greg and Pastor Ed, myself, we've done it right here. During the week, we have people who have called. We come right here, we lay our hands on them, we pray for them. Maybe you've done that. And, and here's the thing. If you've done that, I am not discouraging that at all. I still very much believe in both the power of prayer and the power that God can heal people. So that's not what I'm saying. I want you to hear me. Pastor Jeremy believes that God can still heal people. Pastor Jeremy just doesn't believe that's what this passage is talking about. Okay? But when we do this and we pray, otherwise, how do you explain the fact that... Our pastors come around someone and pray fervently with every aspect of our being. I promise you, with every aspect of our being, pleading before the throne of God that someone be healed. Maybe you have someone in your life, someone you know, a spouse, a child, a friend, a, a sibling, a parent, that you have prayed for fervently that they be healed. And then guess what happened? They didn't get healed. And the only explanation that you can do then is you have to tie, if you tie it to this passage, you have to say, well, it says the prayer of a righteous person. I must not have been righteous enough. I must not have had enough faith in order to heal them. Or that's not what this passage is about. See, the reason we go to the Lord in prayer according to this passage is he says, look, if you're suffering trial and difficulty, then you need to pray continually. If you have a, you're having a great time and everything is well with your soul, then you need to sing praises continually. And if you are weary and fatigued and broken and distraught to the point that you cannot pray even for yourself, then you need to call for the elders of the church who will come together and they will encourage you and pray for you and lift you up. You could read it this way. Is anyone among you weak or weary in the faith? He should call for the elders of the church and they're to pray over him, anointing him, with oil, refreshing and encouraging him or her in the name of the Lord. Because the prayer of faith will save, rescue, or restore the weak person. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, i.e. if his weak faith is a result of sin or has caused him to sin, he will be forgiven. Why? Because he's coming before the Lord and saying, I am dependent on God. I'm broken and I need God. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be restored. Again, this does not negate healing. I believe very clearly the Bible teaches that. I just don't believe that this is what this is talking about here. This is talking about brothers and sisters who are broken. Brothers and sisters who are weak in their faith through difficulties and trials. So in every circumstance in our lives, we're commanded to pray... And to seek the Lord. And many of us, I was going to say some of us, but most of us probably, are prone to look everywhere else. We're prone to look everywhere else in the world during difficult circumstances. Um, and, and we're prone to, to seek remedy outside of God and his direction. But maybe you're at the place where you say, no, when I struggle, I mean, I go to the Lord. Okay, that's, that's great. But what's even more important from this passage is you find 
While you may not be hesitant to go to the Lord when you're struggling, James is actually commanding us to do something that many of us are extremely hesitant to do, and that is to go to the community of believers. To come to brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and say, I'm struggling. I am hurting. I can't even utter a prayer for myself. Can you pray for me? I can tell you, pastors do a lot of counseling. But the counseling sessions I find most refreshing are when someone comes to me and says, I, I'm at the end of my rope. Can you just pray for me? And I can tell you this. If you ever need somebody to pray for you, you call me, I'll be there. That is the one of the most glorious opportunities ever is to get to pray for someone else struggling in their faith so that you might see them what? You might see them restored, encouraged, uplifted. See, loving biblical community is there to come around us. It's to encourage us. It's to help us grow in our faith. It's to hold us accountable and to lift each other up in prayer, drawing us back to God. So we're told that genuine faith prompts us to pray in all circumstances, but genuine faith also prompts us to learn to pray effectively. So learn to pray effectively. Verse 16. It's the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So he says here, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Again, very interesting. This word here for prayer is not the normal word used for prayer in the New Testament. This word for prayer is, um, the, or the normal word for prayer is uh, the word prosukomai, which means praise or prayer or asking for needs. But this is a different word. It's very rarely used. And it is a word that means absolute need, implying an intense request based on desperate need. So it's more than just, Lord, help me have a great day at work. Lord, watch over my kids as they go to school. Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. This is a prayer of desperate need. This is, God, my friend doesn't know Jesus and they are dying. God, my friend is hurting right now. God, my friend or my family member is dealing with this desperate issue right now. That's the kind of prayer that he's talking about. And he says... The prayer, so the desperate cry of what? Of a righteous person has great power when it's working. It's reminding us first that all of this is in the context of the church. So it's in the context of believers. But he doesn't say the prayer of a perfect person or the prayer of a sinless person or the prayer of an extremely mature person. He says the prayer of a righteous person. Well, what does righteous mean? It means to have right standing before God. So a person who is in right standing before God, when you go to the Lord... See, this is an amazing promise. 
This is saying if you are in right standing before God and you go to the Lord with a desperate need on behalf of yourself or on behalf of someone else, when you go to him, he hears your prayer. And in fact, look what it says. I love this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Even, at, even when you're praying, it's already working. God's already at work. And then he says something interesting. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's really important. There's, there's one phrase in here that helps us understand this whole section. This is from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. See, we have a tendency to look at the Old Testament prophets like Elijah. Uh, what did Elijah do? You say, man, I'm thinking of Elijah. The first thing I think of is Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah prayed, right? The prophets of Baal cut themselves, danced around, all that. Nothing happened. He made fun of them the whole time. And then at the end of it, Elijah just knelt down. He prayed. He said, God, basically, this is my paraphrase, God, show up. So God shows up. And what happens? Fire falls from heaven and consumes not just the offering, but the altar and everything else. We say, man, that Elijah was a powerful guy. Raised people from the dead. He prayed and said, God, they're not listening to you. Don't let it rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he said, God, make it rain. And it rained. And we think, man, that Elijah, oh, man, if I could just have a piece Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What is James saying? He's saying, you don't have a piece of something like Elijah. You have the same thing Elijah had. See, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, which means that he was both anointed, but also he was given the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You realize if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit that rested upon Elijah rests upon you? And notice this. It doesn't say, and Elijah, being super awesome, walked out, snapped his fingers, and things happened. Look what it says. It says, and Elijah with the, um, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed what? fervently this wasn't something that came easy to elijah he was on his face pleading with god to do these things with every aspect of his being with every fiber of his being he was crying out to god to do something and james is saying that you have that same ability because the holy spirit that granted that for elijah is the same holy spirit who lives in you Say, why is that so important? Because all of this is in the context of what? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be restored because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. You're struggling, brother and sister. 
You come to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You come to your pastors, your elders. You come to us. You come to them. And we will pray. And we will go before the throne of God for you. And when we go before the throne of God for you, the same Holy Spirit that granted to Elijah that it not rain is the same Holy Spirit that indwells us. The same God who was seated on his throne when Elijah was dealing with Ahab and Jezebel is the same God who is dwelling on the throne right now. And when we go before him, we have something that Elijah didn't have. See, Elijah went... And he prayed and he sought God. The scripture says now because of Jesus, you and I can come before the throne of God boldly and make requests because of the blood that he shed on the cross. So you and I can come before God and we can say, God, my brother is hurting. God, show up. My sister's in pain. God, my child's not saved. God, my spouse doesn't know you. God, show up for my friend. Show up for my brother or my sister in Christ. And look at verse 19. It says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. Notice this. He's talking about sin again and people wandering. Why? Because in the midst of struggle and difficulty, James has told us very clearly, it can be very easy to wander away. It can be very easy to wander from the truth. It can be very easy to do this. And so he says, look, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, why? Because they, their, their suffering and their difficulty brought them to a place where they were weak and, and weary spiritually. And because they were weak and weary spiritually, they were prone to fall into sin. And so he says, if they'll come to you and they'll confess their sins and you'll confess your sins one to another and you will pray for one another. He says, look, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, what it brings him back, how? Well, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be restored. Verse 19 is talking about the same thing that verse 16 is talking about. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will do what? Look at what it says. It does not say heal. It says he will save his soul. Say, oh, so I'm able to save other people's soul? Well, what this means is that in the community of faith, when a person is in sin and they're brought back into a right relationship with God, drawing them back proves that they are not lost, but were in fact a believer who was wandering away and were already indeed saved. They had a relationship with the Lord because the one who stays in this state the one who stays in the state of perpetual wandering, that's always away from the truth and not following God, make no mistake about it, the book of James, if it teaches us anything, it is this. Someone who lives in a continual state where they are wandering away from the truth of God, they're not following the truth of God, the book of James is very clear, the book of 1 John is very clear, that person is not someone who knows the Lord and has simply been wandering for decades upon decades. It is possible for someone to wander for quite some time. But if someone's entire life is marked by their path away from God or they're away from the truth of God, don't listen to the claims of their mouth. Watch the actions of their heart or the actions of their life. That's what Scripture teaches us. That's what James teaches us. And if that's the case, then what are they showing us? They are showing us that if they are wandering and not able to be brought back, then they were never a part of the fold to begin with. 
And if they were wandering and they are able to be brought back, then it's just proving that while they wandered away for a while, they were truly someone who had genuine faith. See, we're to read verses, these verses and realize that we should pray this way for one another. This passage isn't a passage about physical healing. This is a passage about prayer. This is a passage about bringing our brothers and sisters before the throne of God, lifting one another up. See, there are those of us in this room where prayer is not an aspect of our lives at all. And then some of us, there are those of us in this room where prayer is an aspect of our own personal lives. But there are many of us in this room where praying for others is not an aspect of our lives at all. But James makes it very clear through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that praying for one another in the church is not only something we would be a good idea if we did. He's saying it's something that is necessary to the life of faith. Prayer should mark every aspect of what we do. If you're hurting, I want you to hear me, because this happens. Yes, the pastor's on staff. We find out that people have been struggling and dealing with a difficulty after they've already had multiple things happen. And it's like, oh, by the way, she was in the hospital for 12 days. We find out afterward. We find out that you're struggling afterwards. Yeah, how many times in the church have you found out that someone was dealing with something and it's been happening for a long time and you never knew? You know why? It's because for some reason in our pride, we decide that we can handle it ourselves and we want to keep it to ourselves. Can I tell you this? Sigmund Freud said that religion, or even more particularly Christianity, is a crutch. It's a crutch. Karl Marx said that it was a, an opiate for the masses. Can I tell you something? My brothers and sisters in Christ, my local church, it's not a crutch. It is life support for me. If I don't have my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't deal with life the way I'm supposed to. We were not meant to live as lone rangers in this world. We were meant to live dependent on Christ and integrated into his body, the church. It's time that we practice this continually. It is time that this becomes a central aspect of who we are and what we do. It is time for us to become the type of people that pray continually, pray boldly, pray effectively, pray fervently, Pray compassionately for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Believer, this type of powerful and effective prayer, uh, this Elijah-type prayer is available. But some of us are prone to say, yeah, but I mean, I, is it really available to somebody like me? I mean, I'm so sinful, and I do, I, I do so many things that I shouldn't do. Well, he does say it's the prayer of a righteous person. So the truth is, is yes, this prayer is available to you, but I want to make very clear that this prayer is, this type of prayer is available to you. But when you pray, you need to be the kind of person that comes to the Lord and the first thing you do is say, God, forgive me for what I have done. God, I confess that I am a sinner and I am broken and I have no right to come to you on my own, but I can come to you because of the blood of Jesus.
So Lord, forgive me of my sin. Now I'm coming on behalf of my brother. Why? See, the prayer is, this type of prayer is available to you, but believer, are you living the type of life where there's something in your life that's hindering your prayers? There's something in your life that's hindering your prayers. Anything hinder the prayer of God? Look at 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter, husbands. It says, did you know if you don't treat your wives well, your prayers will be hindered by God? The way we live our lives does matter in the way we come before the Lord. So we come before the Lord uh, humbly, broken, confessing, but then boldly and fervently. If this is you and you need to confess your sin, you need to be made right with God, maybe, maybe you need someone to pray with you about this. Maybe you need someone to come with you to the throne of grace, as it were. Maybe you need that this morning. You can have that. I'm going to be up here in the front. I'd love to pray with you. But there are brothers and sisters all over this place that would love to pray with you. If you just need to grab somebody who's next to you and say, can you, can you pray for me? I'm struggling. I promise you, we make this an aspect of our church, and it will be a completely different place. But I can also tell you this. This is why we have Sunday school classes. This is why we have small groups during the week. This is why we encourage it. Because you get into those communities and that's where you are able to confess your sins one to another. That's where you're able to bring your struggles and your difficulties to one another and then pray for one another fervently. Now I'm going to be up front here and that is not because I am a priest and you need to confess your sin to me. That's not what this means. But I can promise you this, I want to go to God on your behalf. I want to go to God on your behalf. Or maybe there's a friend here in the church, someone who wants to do it. You grab them, you bring them up front. You sit right there in the pew, whatever you need to do, and pray for one another. But you also notice at the end of verse 20, it says this. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Literally, he will save him from the death of his soul. The death of his soul. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not a simple game you're playing. This is not a neutral situation. This is not a, well, it's not that big of a deal. No, what you're facing is an issue of life and death, and it is the death of your soul. One day you will stand before the Lord, and if you are not standing with Jesus Christ on your side, you are standing alone, and you will experience what the Bible refers to as the second death. But you don't have to. You can run to Jesus today. He can forgive you of your sins. He can cleanse you. He can make you right. And you can be saved from the death of your soul. And a multitude, the multitude of your sins can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you need to do this morning, I hope that this is a time of prayer, a time of worship, and a time for us to lift one another up if that be the case.